Good morning and welcome to the Eye of Faces. I am Sir Buckley. You are here for Scraps and Scrolls. We're on part five of A Storm of Swords. Part five already, which you'd think would be a long way, but we've got 17 parts. So really, we're still just getting started, but it's all kicking off. It's all getting very, very interesting. So thank you for coming. Hello, how are you? Welcome. Yes, I am Sir Buckley. I am speaking to you from a still windy England, not as windy as yesterday with our 90 mile an hour winds or whatever they were. You may still be able to hear some of them coming through the window. I do apologise for that. Unfortunately, I do not control the wind. Not yet. One day, but not yet. Again, let me say thank you for joining me here on the aisle. Always lovely to have you. Thank you to our patrons, as always, for supporting. We've had some new ones over the last week. So welcome. Happy to tell you, patron-only episode is on its way. It's half recorded, half waiting to be finished off. So that won't be long. Do not worry. I'll talk about that at some other point. Not too much housekeeping today, other than to remind you that last week I was on Indie Geeks live stream. I spoke to Robert about castles and some other stuff as well. Please go and have a look at that if you fancy and all of Robert's live streams and uh, videos because there is a bunch. Other than that, you know the usual. Please do keep checking out History of Westeros and their live stream on Sundays. They have other videos also. They've just released part one of House Blackwood, which I was lucky enough to work on way, way, way back when. I'm sure it's changed a lot since I had my hands on it, but still, please go and have a look because we always enjoy those type of videos as well. And there's plenty, plenty of content all around the fandom. I'm sure you know who I'm talking about. Everyone's always pumping stuff out. We are very, very lucky, even if we do continue to wait for the wins. Not me. I have plenty here, but everyone else. I will do my best not to yawn for you. Uh, me and the wifey, we were up until four o'clock or half four watching the Oscars last night. Well done, Parasite. I'm a 1917 man myself, but you guys already know that. Either way, much fun was had, I'm sure. I hope you watched and enjoyed as well. I have to say, again, another great week for downloads and shares and all those really cool things. So thank you, everybody. I had a really nice review about Kobe Bryant episode. I don't know why Apple Podcasts doesn't tell me when I get a review, but I did find it, don't worry. A really nice review about the Kobe Bryant podcast and that helping someone else through there coming to terms with that so I, I don't think there's a bigger compliment I could have on that podcast so thank you still weirds me out there it's only been two weeks feels like a lot longer but uh, thank you for that review thank you for all reviews all ratings all comments and emails please do get in touch we always love to hear from you you can find us well you know by now you can also find us on YouTube don't forget that big uh, jump in subscribers there and listens there so that's very fun and yes, please do have a look at our Patreon. You might well be interested, especially with the Patreon-only episode coming up. And I remind you, that's for all patrons, $1 and up. So that might be of interest to you. And one very quick note for me. I don't know why I'm sharing with you. I shared on Twitter yesterday. I've had a real big weekend for reading. One of those weekends, especially yesterday, because we were pretty much just shut in because of this uh, storm. Real big weekend for reading where I just sank into a book. But one of those, yeah, it was one of those days where I... Just fell into it and now I can't put it down. Yeah, I don't know why I'm sharing really, just because I'm sure you all love reading too. So do get in touch, let me know what you're reading, what are you obsessed with. We also had a big discussion this week on series that people want to get to but haven't yet, so that was cool as well. Speaking of discussions and Twitter series, before we get to the main event today, let's go through last week's pair pick. If you remember, this week I set you the challenge of deciding between Varys and Littlefinger for which character you would have rather had as a POV through A Song of Ice and Fire. Happy to say, had the highest amount of votes yet, 136, and the result much more decisive than I had anticipated. Easy, with 75% of the vote, was Varys. 75 to 25. Yes, Varys wins, he runs away. 
and always good discussion let me talk through a couple of uh, your comments that you got back to some of the discussions there was a lot of discussions this week that's always very interesting i hope we can keep that up mainly about Littlefinger being a creep and we don't want to get in his head i completely agree at dudson warren i think he says it best maybe in the immortal words of the girls gone canon hosts Littlefinger get a job yes hashtag creep completely well said well echoed by many others and we did have an interesting conversation with dudson warren about he claimed Varys is the lesser of two evils. Now, I happen to agree, because you might have heard me say before, I believe Littlefinger to be the ultimate villain in this series, the worst there is. But let's not forget that Varys has his evils as well. At Manners Without, that's the Brotherhood Without Manners podcast, they made the good point that, at least with Varys, you will see more insight into the plots throughout the world. He's got a wider range. Whereas Peter Baelish, while he is still very informed, is really going to focus in on himself. So Varys, he gets the broad strokes a bit more. That's a great point. Similarly, at Winged Leo, good friend at Winged Leo, he also picks Varys because his insight would be a more interesting read than that of Littlefinger and again makes the same point. He's an agent of chaos, but we only see his self-interest in his own moves. Varys sees the whole board. At Lucid Latino, agrees, I don't want to be near Littlefinger's mind. Also, I find Varys more interesting. Hard to argue with that. We also had a few comments about how we don't really want either of these characters as a POV. At Faranian, I've probably butchered that, but At Faranian says, I like it better with neither open to full scrutiny. Someone needs to keep the reader a little off balance, especially in a work of literature. One of those underlying themes is that all narrators, conventional wisdom, rumours and prophecies are unreliable, and these two do that best. So that's a great point and very well said. And again, Lojack Komura popped up. I don't want any of them because I like the mystery, but... Did vote for Varys in the end because it is always interesting to see who is underneath all the masks. And yeah, that's the big question. I think we know even less of Varys than we do of Littlefinger if possible. At Aim Gamer did say he wants to see how Littlefinger's mind works. So we do have some votes. I think the best vote for Littlefinger we had was some Lindsay Ford. Really, I don't want either of these. Part of what makes them great characters is that we're always guessing their motivations. So much that we heard a second ago. But she voted Littlefinger because I'd only want him as an epilogue POV, to see his reaction when he gets shanked, as all epilogues do. And that is a great point that I had not considered. I think we can all get on board with that. Littlefinger as an epilogue, or even a prologue character, I suppose, but probably not. How sweet would that be, knowing that we know his end is probably around the corner and getting to see that in his mind? Yes, please, give me give me the Winds of Winter epilogue being Peter Baelish at Winterfell, getting shanked, as Lindsay puts it. But I think Tweet of the Week this time has to go to at the Wendy Nerd because she says... Varys, because Sansa has already read Littlefinger like a book. We don't need any further help. Boom. End the podcast there. Great point. Okay, so that was this week. That was Varys with a 75-25% win over Littlefinger. Like I say, highest amount of votes so far. Hopefully we can top that next week. Because, drumroll please, the next pair pick is... We're going to go with a pair of wildling girls. It's Osher versus Gilly. Oh, 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 yes. We're up above the wall. We're up back down below the wall. We're in the north, at least. We're all cold. And we're with these wildling girls who are, okay, both wildlings, but very, very different. About as different as you could get. So that's going to be really interesting. And there's two main schools of thought, I guess. If you pick Osher, you're obviously going to find out where's Rickon and what's going on there. But with Gilly, you can have a, a lot of questions answered about Craster and his history. And we also get another look, another lens through what's happening to Sam and maybe what's going to happen in Old Town and with Euron. So debate that as you will. I hope we get more comments so I can talk it through next time. That poll will be up later today. And yes, yeah, share, share, share. Lovely, lovely, lovely. Okay, main event time. We're going through four chapters today. I guess that's just how it shakes out. Four chapters. We begin with 
We begin with Tyrion 3 in King's Landing, where Tyrion and Cersei wave goodbye to their ability to choose their own marriage partners. We have Catelyn 3, where we start to say goodbye to Rickard Karstark and any northern teamwork. Jamie 3, where we say hello, bloody mummers, goodbye Jamie's hand. And finally, I of 4, where we get to learn a whole lot more about the Brotherhood without banners. So I would tell you this might be a shorter episode than last week with only four chapters. I'm not sure it will be because there are some big, big chapters in here. Especially this one that we start with now with Tyrion 3. So I think as he's mentioned that we have a big old contrast. If you remember last week, we were on the fist, or we closed on the fist. The memories of Samuel Tarly escaping that hellhole, having to kill an other and trudge away into the rising dawn. And now we skip all the way down to a comfy small council room where we can talk about all these things that obviously don't matter to us now because of the bigger enemy has been played up north. But still, these things do matter and George, he has a good way of uh, getting us back interested. So far in our King's Landing chapters, we've had the constant rumble of political cogs turning in the background. But little has actually been presented front and centre as this chapter here. We've had thing, hints in Sansa chapters. We've heard Tyrion gain information from Bronn, but really we haven't had big discussions like we have had so often before. In fact, we've had very little of this in a, in a long time. The most comparable is Sansa watching from afar in the aftermath of the Blackwater in the throne room, where actually many of the points raised in this chapter actually originated. But as far as a fully fledged council meeting where all hands are laid on the table, you know, as much as they ever are in King's Landing, it's been a minute. It's been a long time. We didn't get a lot of that in Clash of Kings at all. And most important, this is our first opportunity to really see the Tyrells and Lannisters together. So this is an incredibly important display of the new game board, both for us and Tyrion. He's kind of being reintroduced to it as well. And again, there is the prevailing theme of this book. What once was, no longer is. That status quo is gone. This is a new day in King's Landing. And again, I think as he's mentioned, they symbolise that very, or George symbolises that very well by everyone scrambling to get a chair. And it all ends up with Tywin versus Tyrion at opposite ends of the table. I wasn't really sure where to put this in the notes, but this whole chapter is really the clearest ever example we get of Kevin being Tywin's vanguard in council, as Tyrion puts it. The whole way through the chapter is evident. Tywin will say a sentence, he'll present one idea, and then Kevin basically argues it for him all the way without them ever actually having to communicate. It's obviously all very preordained, they're working off a script. Shudder to think how many times they've run this before, they, they know, their, know their roles basically. And we just get to see a lot of evidence of, yeah, Kevin just knowing how to work off Tywin and not making Tywin ever have to explain himself or Tywin never has to persuade anyone. He never has to do any groveling. He lets Kevin do that for him, lets him fill in the blanks. Tywin just gets to make a blanket statement. He opens the discussion, he closes the discussion and Kevin can do the, the donkey work basically. Now, as we've said before, Tyrion knows there are Tyrells around, although this is our first good look at a few of the Reach Bannermen. That's important. Tyrion knows about Pycelle being back, and he knows about some of the rewards of the Blackwater, but he's back in an official arena now, and actually having to deal with and interact with these factions, both new and old, is a far cry from hearing about it from Bronn. Hence, it's constant internal refrains after almost every sentence in this book. You can, we know how he's feeling, we know he's not happy, he's bitter, and we're getting a lot of that from his internal monologue, quite similar to how when Jon was getting very stressed with Mance and thinking about his, his orders from Corrin, after every sentence he would refer back to them that's kind of what Tyrion's doing here after every sentence he refers to how he's being shunned or how he actually did this or that or whatever else because it is so important to him it's, it's stressing him out and he actually does keep fairly quiet for him in this meeting at least at the beginning he has displayed such tendencies before such as the war council by the green fork 
But like I say, he's just reacting with bitter or indignant in the thoughts. And it's not like this is completely new ground for us, but the effect is intensifying. We can see it just kind of ratcheting up a bit and it's leading down the road to the twisted Tyrion of Dance with Dragons. So we've been waiting for Tyrion to get back in the game and really jump back off the sidelines that he was forced into, and we have that here. Let's start off with the first quote of the day. That chain of yours, that was cunning, Mace Tyrell had said in a jolly tone, and Lord Redwine nodded and said, Quite so, quite so. My Lord of Highgarden speaks for all of us, and very cheerfully too. Tell it to the people of this city, Tyrion thought bitterly. So this seems like the male equivalent of what Elena and Marjorie tried with Sansa, the kind approach to potentially get someone else on side. The Tyrells are smart enough to know that Tyrion and Tywin have beef, and probably can sense that Tyrion would react well to some compliments about his efforts in the battle, and you know they're right, they've hit it on the nail. But unfortunately, it gets laid on a bit thick for cynical Tyrion's tastes, and instead we find him resenting the small folk and the general idea that they want to give credit to Renly instead, again laying tracks for later on in the book, Tyrion versus the small folk, we know that's going to come in his trial. Another quote. His uncle Kevin had been the warmest, going so far as to kiss his cheek and say, Lancelot told me how brave you were, Tyrion. He speaks very highly of you. And I think Kevin actually seems to be genuine here, and Lancelot did indeed think Tyrion was doing well on the battlefield. But Tyrion can't even accept a genuine compliment at the moment, and only responds with an internal threat against Lancelot, in terms of what Lancelot could say if he wanted to. And we also get an update on Lancelot's terrible condition, which is a shame after his mini turnaround at the end of Clash. We spoke about that a lot in the Blackwater chapters. It's interesting there's a real difference in tone between this council and what we heard from Rob's camp last time out in the, in the Catelyn chapter. Rob and Catelyn and the Tullys, they consider the war very much alive and they're seeking ways to keep themselves in the game. Here we see the Lannisters and Tyrells consider the whole thing nearly wrapped up, again hinting at what possible reason Tywin could have for being so confident that everything's going to work out. Hmm, I wonder why. As Tywin begins to explain himself about Rob going north and having another army come from Lannisport, I find it really interesting that he's mixing together a strategy made up of old and new tactics for him. As far as I know, arranging a wedding betrayal of the enemy is new ground for Tywin, but forming up a new Lannisport army to come east and attack River Run, or potentially enact a pincer movement with Tywin's forces, that seems to be Lannister Battle Plan 101. I'm pretty sure this is like the seventh army Lannisport has tried to form. Seems like that. Seems like every book we're getting a new Lannisport army. But more importantly, Tywin's absolute confidence that Rob will be moving north is quickly covered by Mace going on about what he would do if he were Rob. On a reread, when looking for signs of the Red Wedding, Tywin's confidence is now blaringly loud, where before it's really unnoticeable, you don't pick it up that much. And it obviously goes so far that Tywin is not concerned about Rob turning around to help, and must also be thinking that Edmure wouldn't be able to mount a tangible resistance with the Riverlords. We now know that's because Edmure will likely be captured and the Riverlords will fall apart, so Tywin's part in this plan just becomes clearer and clearer the more I reread and look for these snares, this, these long strings all wrapped up around the red reading and see how far it's fought out and why Tywin is so confident. And also just to add on to that, this plan to bring in the new Lannister army and send that to besiege River Run, that's going to set up Jamie's Riverlands arc where he has to go and sort that all out. So we're setting seeds left and right here in this chapter. We can kind of look at it as the focus is finally swinging around from east to west as the war between Stark and Lannisters prepares to restart. We kind of had to have a break where Tywin had to come east, deal with Stannis, and that was the culmination of Clash of Kings. Now we've had that big set battle piece and the, the spotlight swings back around to the west and Rob Stark. Tyrion has some begrudging respect for Rob and his record in battle here, maybe because Tyrion has so recently tried his own hand at battle and warcrafting. He even gets annoyed at Mace daring to compare himself to Rob because it seems so unfair that all of Rob's creative and heroic victories can be sneered at 
by an incompetent Mace because Tywin has already rigged the game. That's, he is allowing Mace to do that. It's even more annoying because Mace is right about Rob going north, but that's all by complete coincidence, so even more annoying. And again, I could probably slip this quote in anywhere really, but I'll put it here. I ought to write Rob Stark a stern letter, Littlefinger was saying. I understand his man Bolton is stabling goats in my high hall. It's really quite unconscionable. So I, I take this little uh, insert as Littlefinger is subtly reminding everyone about his new station, considering the topic that will come up later with Lysa Aaron. He's just setting the siege. Hey guys, just remember, I own Harrenhal now. I'm a lord of a great lord of Westeros. So uh, I'm going to come back to that in a second. This classic Littlefinger just uh, giving a little prod to everyone. Now the conversation moves on to Balon Greyjoy and his offers of alliance and what can be done about him and the North. And it's a very interesting development that Balon believes his war in the North has gone well enough to start offering alliances when it seems so doomed in Clash of Kings and Theon's end and all that, all that stuff. We know that it truly is doomed, so perhaps this is more Balon trying to take advantage of his situation before everything goes truly wrong and everyone finds out how shit he is at everything. I find Tywin's reaction to this very interesting because he's he seems plenty confident that Balon could become a problem that they don't want to deal with later, but he also ends up deciding not to accept the alliance. I do wonder if Tywin goes through this procedure and this kind of farce of a conversation merely because Cersei gives us a taste of what's to come in Feast and her POV with this quote. He ought to be offering fealty, snapped Cersei. By what right does he call himself king? Or perhaps it's merely show for the Tyrells, as Tywin would logically be an unable to hold an alliance with both Balon and Roose, and he's obviously much deeper in the basket with Roose by now. And that's who would have to deal with the Ironborn anyway, whether Tywin shuns them or not, so the choice is quite clear there. From the Iron Islands to the Vale, this, this council's working the whole map into their conversation. We talk about Lysa a little bit, and Tyrion, he actually reminds us of his darkness when thinking on his time in the Eyrie. But I'm wondering if that real bitterness he has about the Vale and Lysa Aaron is going to come back some way for winds. Uh, let me give you this quote here. He says, My lords, grant me the men and I will sort out Lysa Aaron. He could think of nothing he would enjoy more, except perhaps strangling Cersei. Sometimes he still dreamed of the eerie sky cells and woke drenched in cold sweat. And this is really one of Tyrion's first things he actually puts into this council meeting. And it's only met of condescension from Mace. So again, we can see Tyrion's mood worsening. So we've had west, we've had east, now we're talking south as the subject of the Martells coming to King's Landing is raised. And we have this quote from Tywin. Not only to join in our celebration, but to claim his seat on this council and the justice Robert denied him for the murder of his sister Elia and her children. That's Tywin Lannister saying that. The justice that Robert denied him. <sighs> is that not just, wow, Tywin hypocrisy is best, surely. Another quote on this subject. Redwine does not give a fig, Tyrion thought, but Rowan looks fit to gag. I enjoy seeing that certain lords can still detect this kind of injustice. They're obviously talking about Elia and the murder of her children here. They can still detect this kind of injustice, even if they know it will do them no good to speak up about it. Not yet, anyway. I'd have to check if House Rowan has any particular ties to House Targaryen, but certainly Mattis Rowan seems to be annoyed about the lie, so maybe he'll find his voice when either Fake Hagon or Daenerys come calling. That would be very interesting. Friends in the Reach indeed. I often wonder what Tywin's long-term plans would have been for keeping the Martells and Tyrells working together, not only in the same city, but on the same small council. Even from this small expert, there's complaints and problems, and that's about half of the problem, and the more incendiary half ever being present in the room when Oberyn turns up. Tywin's supposed plan of everyone playing one big happy family seems far too basic, and he must surely realise the Dornish are going to want some real token of true vengeance. And I just can't see Tywin encouraging this coalition once Rob and Stannis are defeated 
and we can have some fun imagining Tywin coming up with excuses or plans to send at least one of the factions back home once the realm is safe. Of course, that'll never happen because it turns out that the thing in common between Tyrell and Martell is they've got zero interest in being members of the Lannister family, as it's currently formed at least. The Tyrells will murder one member so they can force better terms with another, whilst Oberyn Martell intends to stop at nothing to win vengeance for his sister, and maybe also poisons Tywin, that's another discussion. So this Southern Coalition really never stood a chance at all. Sorry Tywin. And I probably should just pause quickly there because the storm outside has renewed and started again. Perhaps it can sense we're talking about Storm of Swords here and what's getting involved. So if you can hear the wind and rain over the mic, uh, my apologies, I will try and do my best to edit that out later. But anyway, back to the back to what we're up to. So they leave the Martells there and they get down to what they're really all there for, divvying up the spoils from the Blackwater, even more so than they've already done in that Sansa chapter at Clash of Kings. And I think as he's mentioned that the Tyrells, they're sitting pretty here. They're, ga- they're getting loads of stuff. Garland gets Brightwater Keep. Uh, all the bannermen there dividing up little extra pieces of land or what have you, tax relief. They're really pretty happy with the package they're getting there. And in terms of Garland going down to take Brightwall Keep, if we zoom in on our map, look at down at the reach, down that southwest corner of the southwest corner, if you like, it really does kind of make a little solid power block in that kind of middle southwest region of the reach. And the Tyrells now control, they extend their control of the region's rivers. So you've got High Garden on the Mander, obviously. Now Brightwater Keep at the top of the Brandywine. So they have a bit of faster access to Old Town or the Redwine Straits if needed. And I'm sure that isn't lost on Mace or Garland just in case uh, anything later needs to happen. And we might see that being really important in terms of uh, what's coming with Euron later. As a more general overview of these, these spoils and what's happening, the entire idea of repossessing the homes of 47 lesser lordlings and 1,600 uh, knights obviously the losers of Stannis' side, that's a huge deal. It's a massive shift of politics, resources and influence that can be entirely dictated by Tywin and the other victors. They just get to decide now what's going to happen with all these tracts of land and homes and anyone sworn to them. True, there's nothing else as famous as Brightwell Keep, but this is still going to affect thousands of people, either by them being on the good side and being gifted new lands and powers that they now owe to the Lannisters and Tyrells, that's important, or if they're on the unlucky side and being removed from these lands and their homes, likely leaving them with little resources with which to challenge the Lannister Tyrells. So you can really see the strings here. Oh, we don't like these people to do too much. Let's take away their lands. They can't strike back at us. Oh, we want this person to owe us something, or we need to reward him for something. Let's give him this tract of land. That's how it's working. So sure, the Lannisters won the Blackwater because they needed to survive. If they didn't, they were dead. But this kind of prize and power is a huge part of the victory pie and it's crucial in trying to re-establish a dominant reign of the crown. They need their influence to spread out further than King's Landing. They're trying to get the whole of Westeros, especially this southern block, uh, under control again. And this is how they're going to do it. The downside of this is that it will encourage many to harbour resentment, either by further buying into the Stannis Baratheon cause that their father or relative died for, or sheer annoyance they've been punished for something that was nothing to do with them. This is obviously if they're one of these people getting their lands taken away from them. Either way, it means if they ever see the Lannisters start to topple, as they might not too long after this, they'll be all too happy to start pushing along with them. And next in line for the stupid Cersei quote of the day, the conversation turns to the gold cloaks who broke or ran during the, um, during the battle and what should be done with them, and of course Cersei comes out of this. They might have endangered Joff with their cowardice, Cersei said at once. I want them put to death. So, 
Almost an identical statement to earlier, where Cersei just jumps straight to the extreme. Tywin's solution of broken legs isn't any kinder, but it again shows that at least he's thinking a little bit. Cersei does not. Just straight away, kill them all. No thought for resources or what that might look like, or optics or anything like that. Just straight off, and that won't be the last we see of that in this chapter. Staying with these people who have broken and what, and what to do with them, what is far more telling is when Varys and Tyrion both try to direct some men to the Night's Watch. It's definitely poignant for Tyrion to remember Gior and the calm times back at the Wall, when we've just seen Gior escape from a wintry hell in our last chapter last week, and we really now know how, how imperative it is for more men to join the Night's Watch, that's really important. But it's also nice that Tyrion bothers to try and get some justice for the fallen Sir Jacqueline Bywater, showing us he has not completely fallen into Dance of Dragons' hatred just yet. But it's Tyrion's reaction we should be most concerned with here, because he is so cocksure, so arrogant and self-obsessed, he completely blows off the problem of, of 100,000 wild things breaking into the north, as Varys tries to report here. Now, to be fair, there aren't specific numbers mentioned here, but Tywin is pretty clear in opinion. He'd rather use this as an advantage to battle his enemies. He even thinks of making an alliance for Mance. And it's honestly surprising that a man who was hand for so long can be this naive about what a wilding invasion could mean for the north and for the southern kingdoms as, as well. Or maybe he really just did leave Rickard Stark to his own devices back in the day, maybe just didn't bother with the north at all. No, we don't really have any information on that. But let's not forget that Tywin is supposed to be running the whole seven kingdoms right now. But there's no thought for anyone outside his cause, whether they be civilian or militant. He shirks his duty when last week we had John specifically thinking of how he would do anything to protect the North and the rest of Westeros as well, how all the Stark children were thinking about their own duties. And considering, in our very last chapter, like I said, we just saw the plight of the Night's Watch laying down their lives for the Wall, even though there's no songs for them and no one will ever know, and that we know firsthand what is coming to the Wall, it's obvious Tywin will not stir for the others either, and it has really made clear to us what damage he will do as a leader. Again, it's the opposite to John, and later in this book, it'll be the opposite for Stannis as well. Stannis is the one who answers the call, Tywin is not. And I guess also, sorry Roos, I suppose you're now on your own against both Ironborn and Wildlings, plus whatever comes over that wall. It's quite clear Tywin was not intending to help Roos out with any of those. Varys isn't done, he has yet more reports, let me give you this quote. There's fighting on the Stepstones, and a new war between Tyrosh and Lys seems likely. Both hope to win Myrrh as an ally. Sailors back from the Jade Sea report that a three-headed dragon has hatched in Calf, and it's the wonder of that city. Dragons and Krakens do not interest me, regardless of the number of their heads, said Lord Tywin. So I love that Varys frames this report of Daenerys in such a way that makes it seem completely fanciful and far away and on the horizon. So he technically does fulfil his role of, of reporting the truth, but also completely plays Tywin, as we see in Tywin's response. Varys obviously wants to keep people guessing about Daenerys, or better yet, not bother guessing at all. So best way is to prop up the idea that it's just a stupid rumour. I think Tywin might have got a bit more interested as time went on, but this is definitely the kind of thing that will work on Cersei later, where she just thinks, no, this is the story, because because of these reports, basically. I wonder if he is employing the same tactic when he begins talking about war on the Stepstones. Is that his cover for reporting on the movement of the Golden Company, perhaps? Not that the Golden Company would be involved in this yet, I, I think, but it's in the right geographic direction. Either way, it's classic Varys especially him even saying the words three-headed dragon and Tywin still not getting the hint. Of course, Tyrek Lannister is next on the agenda and obviously Lannisters loom far larger in Tywin's mind than even dragons do. And speaking of Tyrek, and it, that just makes it more difficult for me to say Tywin, Tyrek, Tyrion is really testing me here. Just to add to all this act, Varys gets close to tears when he reports that Tyrek is still missing, 
Despite most of the fandom being fairly convinced Varys either has him in possession or at least knows what happened to him in the riots. So this really is the Varys we grew up with in this chapter where he's really employing all of his little tricks of tricks of the trade. Let's switch from Varys to Littlefinger here and it's it's good to see Peter Bayliss hasn't changed whatsoever in his time away. And it is kind of amazing how long we've actually been away from him. It has been a while. It's the same unfunny jokes, same being weird in front of everyone and the same sense that he probably goes back to his chambers after these meetings telling himself at Everyone absolutely loved his gags, he had a great day at school. The majority of those present seem to either find him annoying or likely incapable, although he does get a chuckle out of Mace, if, if that's the kind of thing that matters to you. But it doesn't seem to bother Peter too much, as he's already got what he wants. He knows he'll be sent to the Vale, he knows he's got the lordship he already needs, knows he's about to steal Sansa away. Mace even points out that Peter will be away for the wedding, reassuring his alibi for him, good job Mace. This must be a very exciting time for Littlefinger. He's about to travel into the next stage of his master plan. It's a real big hurdle he's about to go over. And he's going to leave all of this behind. So I suppose he wants to get in as many dick jokes as he can before he has to leave. Now once the first half of the meeting finishes and the Mace and his cronies leave and Littlefinger and Varys leave, the Lannisters, by which I mean Tyrion, Cersei, Tywin and Kevin still remaining, they talk about Littlefinger a little bit more. Let me give you this quote. A coin is as dangerous as a sword in the wrong hands. His uncle Kevin looked at him oddly. Not to us, surely. The gold of Cassidy the Rock is dug from the ground. Littlefinger's gold is made from thin air with a snap of his fingers. The Lannisters are so secure in their gold delivering their position, Kevin can't even perceive of anyone without a huge army knocking them off, which is strange considering how close they came to losing it all in Clash of Kings, and doesn't bode well for his dealings with the Tyrells. I guess it speaks to how unique Littlefinger really is. His path to success is so against the status quo. Tyrion seems to be the only one to recognise Littlefinger for the danger he is. But this is all just a tad too late, as we discussed many times in Clash, he had his opportunity. But I suppose he also had a lot of things drawing his attention elsewhere. Likely Tyrion regrets that now, but he lacks the power to do anything about it. We should also consider that Littlefinger knows he's going to be framing Tyrion for Joff's murder in a few weeks, so making him master of coin seems like a little dig to annoy Tyrion, but also confuse the finances and books of the crown, and possibly keep his own embezzlement hidden for a little while longer. If the master of coin is arrested, then there's going to be a period where no one's looking, presumably. So as we go into the ending of this chapter, we find out what it is remembered for, we learn that Sansa told Dontos, Dontos told Littlefinger, and Littlefinger has now told Tywin about the plan for Sansa and Willis to marry in Highgarden. So we get a little kick even before Tywin reveals his plan for Tercy and Tyrion, because we immediately know that Sansa will somehow not be heading off to her dream castle anytime soon. Again, Tyrion is the only one to lend a thought as to why Peter Baelish would bother bringing this up as information, as opposed to Varys. But before he has time to wonder on it, we already get a glimpse of the Cersei we can look forward to in Feast and Dance yet again. Let's take a little bit more time to focus on that this time. The Cersei has never been a particularly calm or forward-thinking politician, but she seems to have moved up a level since Clash of Kings, and I can only imagine stress and rage are straining at her now, as they will continue to do for the last few pages. I believe she has likely rankled about how reduced she was in Clash, how Tywin has taken control when she likely dreamed of having a more equal partnership with him when he got back to town, and how the Tyrells are now encroaching on her turf more and more every day. Back in those Clash of King episodes, we spoke a lot about how cool it would have been to have Cersei's POV a lot earlier on, and while I maintain that Clash would be best for a Cersei POV, it'd still be interesting to see her frustration early here. She's been pushed to the side, even Joffrey has been majorly off-screen so far in this book, we really haven't seen him, and you have to assume she's already getting very, very paranoid about Marjorie and what these Tyrells are, are taking away from her. And all of this is before Tywin's command coming up in a second. And I digressed a bit there because the glimpse we get of Cersei is her jealous hoarding of Sansa all of a sudden. 
of how the idea of keeping the Tyrells sweet flies completely over her head and the idea that the Tyrells should feel lucky that the Lannister even talked to them, whether it be offensive or not. That's her reaction to this news about the Tyrell plot. It really shows her off as selfish, idiotic and taking the very worst of Tywin's traits with none of the brains. It also shows her limited range of, of thinking. Tywin is immediately concerned that if the Tyrells can quickly switch from Renly to Joffrey, they can just as easily switch to Rob. No doubt, Cersei has and would never consider such a possibility. But after that comes the big slap from Tywin, one so powerful that even though it's verbal, it looks as if it were physical. We know and have discussed Cersei's unhappy, abuseful marriage at length back when Robert was alive, so we can imagine the horror this must inspire within. And it mixes perfectly with that feeling of frustration of a loss of power, with everything she's done leading up to the same moment as 20 odd years ago, despite all her efforts. She's the one who got rid of Robert, she put her with Ned Stark, she took the throne for her son, she's the Queen Regent, as even Tyrion thinks to himself, and yet she's still essentially being sold as she was before. So you can just see how, how empty that must feel her, like I've done all this for nothing, but basically that would be going through her mind. Tywin gives us a great example of knowing your audience, as well as a great example of how to be horribly evil. He surely knows his daughter was unhappy with Robert, at least you'd think, does he even care, does he have that part of the brain? And he knows this is going to make her unhappy again. But Tywin sees his daughter as a walking womb and a tool with which to make alliances. She is treated as a broodmare, as she says, with as much or less respect from her father than a farmer gives his herd. If you are ever pressed to try and persuade someone to pity Cersei, you might want to point to this passage here. But Tywin really does know what he's doing, and consider this is with his children now fully grown, imagine how much he bullied them growing up. He mixes subtle pressure about Stannis' lies, combined with first suggesting what would be obviously horrible matches for Cersei. I mean, is there anyone less appealing in this world than Balon Greyjoy? All before he then brings up his preferred choice of Willis, who now seems much better by comparison. Even Tyrion feels sorry for Cersei after all this, and that's really saying something. Then again, after Cersei walks out, Tywin then turns his guns on Tyrion, and though he's not nearly as brutal in his way of talking about it, it amounts to the same thing. Tyrion will be sold off or else. This obviously touches the nerve of Tyrion, given the fact that Tywin brings up sex workers first and immediately links the themes together to represent Tyrion's dissolved marriage to Tysha. Unsurprisingly, Tyrion gets real, real angry under the surface at his father. Not only is he being reminded of the whole affair, but Tywin is acting like it never happened, as he will in Tyrion's final chapter. And that obviously gets on Tyrion's wick quite a bit. Tywin even manages to get a height joke in there, for good measure. And if Tywin is going to be that cruel about his own flesh and blood, why would he be any different to a member of the house that is his sworn enemy, in terms of talking about Sansa? We have this lovely quote. Why? Do you plan to mistreat her? His father sounded more curious than concerned. The girl's happiness is not my purpose, nor should it be yours. So doesn't this just sum him up perfectly? Tywin simply does not care about a woman's feeling or her soul. Like Cersei, Sansa is just another body to be put to use for Tywin, everything else be damned. It says volumes about his issues with women and the female gender, especially when we get into his hypocrisy with sex workers and Shay, and really it just paints him as completely evil. He simply does not care about Sansa or her well-being. The fact that Sansa is still a child is huge here because it produces another similarity to Tysha. Tywin is effectively telling Tyrion to have sex with someone regardless of their consent, so there's not a whole lot of distance between this rape and the one committed in the barracks so long ago. And just to slide this in here, we should note that Tyrion does suggest returning Sansa to Catelyn, so he at least recalls the vow he once made and he has some kind of inkling to do right by her. But anyway, if we looked at how Tywin pitched to Cersei, let's do the same for Tyrion, but start with the key difference. Cersei gets commanded to obey, Tyrion does not. I think that says bunches for itself. But back to the pitch, 
Tywin begins with recounting how no one in Westeros wanted Tyrion while he was growing up, playing on the idea that this might be Tyrion's only chance at marrying a woman either as beautiful or as high class as Sansa, and it really plays on one of Tyrion's major insecurities that we've discussed time and time again in his chapters, the idea that he cannot be loved. Clearly, Tywin recognises this and is despicably cruel enough to play on it. Then Kevin gets to play good cop by dangling Winterfell over Tyrion's head before Tywin returns and begins wondering if one of Tyrion's cousins should get the cookie instead, obviously trying to inspire jealousy in his son. It is literally like they are trying to get a toddler to behave. Unfortunately, it does kind of work on Tyrion. Lord Protector of Winterfell amuses, while his main gig in King's Landing is gone, so you can't blame him for wondering, and he did have an odd connection with both Winterfell and the Night's Watch back on his journey north, so fair enough. And now the conversation kind of comes full circle as we return to Rob, and like with other information earlier on in Tyrion 1, Tywin already knows about Rob and Jane getting married. This information will be spreading rapidly, of course, but this is another clue that Tywin is getting information from somewhere he's not supposed to be, possibly even the Spicers. I really hadn't considered that possibility on previous reads, but that mixed with this quote, Rob Stark will father no children on his fertile fray. You have my word. That really makes me think that Tywin may have had a deal in place for Jane to be forced to drink Moon after the Red Wedding. I suppose that picture might become clearer as we go, but certainly there'd be some irony there if poor Jane had her own tansy situation. Plus, Kevin gives us a bit of an extended history on Sybil Spicer herself, so maybe there's no smoke without fire. Now to end this chock-a-block chapter, we have Tyrion wondering why Tywin isn't more annoyed about the Westling betrayal, and Tywin actually threatens to smile. Creepy, creepy, creepy. We're getting so close to the actual Red Wedding now, and I know, no, please say it isn't so, that on reread, all the elements really are just being laid out on the table, as if it were the most obvious thing in the world. This is a major, major event that George knew about, so we can see why he's layered it like this. By this point, even first-time readers know something is going to go down, but I'd imagine no one would guess what, and certainly not that it happens just past the halfway point of the book. First-timers, and even an in-world character as smart as Tyrion, who probably has more of the pieces than anyone else, can't imagine the Red Wedding because it is so against the natural order, so completely off the board, his mind can't even conceive that anyone would dream it up. So yes, creepy smile indeed. So if we're talking about them, why don't we go and visit them? Let's move on with Catelyn Free. I think as he's mentioned this, it's pretty cruel to put that planning chapter about what's going to go down with the Starks and then show us straight away. Now, this is also a fairly quick turnaround from Catelyn 2, a five chapter gap instead of the 11 chapters between Catelyn 1 and 2. And there's another big gap coming between this Catelyn chapter and the next. So everything has to be quite set in River Run and the Riverlands because Catelyn chapters will be coming fairly regular after that last gap. So if we're going to look at this chapter overall, what with all its implications politically, with what the multiple deaths will mean to the several families involved, we can see that Catelyn 3 is more about mood than anything else. Right from the off, that pesky rain returns to hammer down on us as we discuss the cold-blooded murder of innocent children held as prisoners. And we should probably think, is that some kind of violation of guest right? Probably is somewhere. Not only that, we have the heavy-hearted beheading of a semi-family member, and that puts us back on talk of the Kinslayer curse, so it's all just bad. More so, we see Rob truly step into his father's shoes as a man carrying out a duty he does not want to do with the weight of his blade. And though we have no idea that this is one of the last acts we'll see Rob do, it's certainly a fitting closer to his arc, or at least the beginning close to his arc. Finishing nearly the same way we saw Ned start. Way back in Game of Thrones, Ned beheaded someone he didn't really want to have to behead. And we're not quite at the end of Rob yet, but close enough, that's how his life is going to end with him having to do the same thing. 
Everything in this chapter is supposed to be miserable. Everything is supposed to represent just another corner on this horror slide Catelyn and her family stepped onto last week. And certainly, the chapter doesn't waste time, it doesn't pull its punches. Let's begin with this opening quote. They carried the corpses in upon their shoulders and laid them beneath the dais. He smells the blood, she thought, through stone walls and wooden doors, through night and rain. He still knows the scent of death and ruin. So before we are given a chance to know the situation or the people involved, we are told of death in the castle. Given the chapter we've just had and the general mood in the first two Catelyn chapters, we could have been forgiven for thinking this was someone closer to Catelyn. Either way, she follows up with the connection she felt to Greywind in her previous chapter. Her thoughts on the wolf were gloomy then, they are gloomy now, and they remind us of her interactions of summer back when Bran was saved. That's fitting, as her next thoughts are naturally of Bran and Rickon as she looks down on corpses of two boys. Given that we connected Rob's big act of marrying Jane and Catelyn's big act of freeing Jamie, we're fearing about those two deaths from miles and miles away. We're getting a real connection now that they're stood next to each other in this moment. Undoubtedly, Rob is envisioning the same as they both looked out on the pair. And if we're going to say that Rob is emulating his father later on in the chapter with the beheading, we also have to note Rob is also showing one of the formative moments of Eddard's life, the corpses of children being presented in a throne room. The circumstances are different, but the message is clear about how stupid all war is when it ends in results like this. And if he had lived longer, we might have seen this moment have the same effect on Rob as Rhaenys and Aegon did on Ned. Another quote about Catelyn. Her dreams were dark and laced with terrors. Now, I think this is George straight trolling us all. This is obviously just a throwaway line, but it's damn close to Melisandre's favourite saying. And we do know by which religion Catelyn's reanimated, so maybe it is a little hint there. I think Aziz got to my note on there being a lot of foreshadowing for Catelyn's body being pulled from the river later on in this book. We also have some real physical descriptions that are quite comparable to her final chapter. There is pounding rain. Grey wind is howling. And special note is made of the red ruin of Willem's throat, very similar to how Catelyn's own throat will end up. Now to exit Catelyn's mind for a minute, Rob notes that the death toll required to kill two unarmed prisoner teens is excessively high, and means Rickard hasn't just killed Rob's prisoners, but men sworn to him and his uncle Edmure too. R.I.P. Delp, the best named to Song of Ice and Fire character ever. You will be forever in our hearts. Long live Delp. And all of that pulls Rob into a role of responsibility for them as well. I think George makes sure to note that Catelyn sees the Northmen as big and bearded as a way to almost mock that it took so many of them to kill two flowery southerner boys. And the message of what Rickard's vengeance means is that more people than required have died, that the others are concerned of being associated with an Avenger, that it brings Rickard only doom, and it spreads that doom all around. Compare it to Davos and how he's pulled back from the brink and given a higher purpose, or think of how Catelyn herself becomes the flagship for Avenge later. In fact, the two books going forward, especially Feast, will be largely connected with Vengeance as an overall theme for the entire book, so we're really getting a mini preview here with Rickard's empty attempt at gaining resolution of his pain and how it just ends up hurting more people. I get the sense that Rickard doesn't even truly believe his own words when he explains himself. It's more like he's mocking the entire system that is claimed as two sons. Deep down, he knows Tion Frey and William Lannister are not appropriate targets for his revenge given the circumstances but he knows he can bullshit his way around to at least sound like it's something that could be true, even if it's not. I think we can all agree Rickard wanted to put Rob in this unwinnable position as soon as he decided to do all this, knew he wanted to push the letter of the law far beyond the limits, and knew he wasn't ever going to win this argument. Rob is clearly right, and we can see Rickard wasn't buying into his own words by how quickly he instead lays the blame at Catelyn's feet, because he knows what happened to these boys was wrong, it was a violation, and he wants to twist the knife by leaving them the sensation that it's her fault. The fact that he doesn't look at their bodies is also telling. 
Somewhere deep down, Rickard doesn't like what he's done. He's still a Northman, he still knows of honour, he is still a father, and he doesn't want to look at the result of his actions, again showing us all he wants to do is something. He just wants to piss everyone off, he wants to make it all very difficult, and basically wants to say screw you to everyone as he continues on his own devastating spiral into depression and pain at the death of his sons. And it's heartbreaking that Catelyn does take on Rickard's accusations and feels guilty over Tion and Willem, even if it is very much in her wheelhouse and classic Catelyn to do so. This is completely unfair though. We've discussed before that Rickard was incapable of finding a peaceful solution for his pain, which is fair enough, and that he was going to snap at some point. If Jamie had died during retaking, or in place of Willem and Tion, I doubt we would have been enough. Obviously, if Catelyn hadn't freed Jamie, and if he had been eventually swapped for Sansa, it probably would have pissed Rickard off even more. So him pointing to Catelyn as a reason for so him pointing to Catelyn as a reason for what he just did is just him looking for a quick out. Rickard was already on his spiral, regardless of what happened. And the idea that her vengeance excuses his own, so I guess he is admitting that's what it is now, is a foolish, childish notion. But again, Rickard's defence and argument is so off-base because he's not interested in being freed. He knows his fate, he just wants to take Rob down as big of a notch as possible. He doesn't even really want to climb out of his spiral, he just wants to drag as many down with him as he can. I believe this might be different on the show, but I'd forgotten that the Karstarks leave River Run before Rob even senses Rickard. Obviously this has all been pre-arranged by Rickard himself, again to cause the most devastation he can, and critically they've been told to go out and kill Jamie. So that's another two counts of treason. Abandonment and disobeying of orders, as well as throwing any chances of making peace into the fire. Worse still, we know a lot of these Karstarks are just going to lose themselves and bring yet more misery and chaos to the small folk, so the game continues to roll and crush, thanks to Rickard and he's not caring for anyone else. The only joy it brings me is that any Karstark man that would have made it home the hope of claiming Alice Karstark as a reward, but to find she's gone and married a Fen thanks to Rob Stark's brother anyway. So that's a nice little bit of irony. The sending out of Karstark men also puts a major arrow in the foot of Edmure's essentially sensible plan to just keep quiet and wait until they are in a better position to deal with everything. The news will soon be everywhere, and very quickly, but for Rob that's besides the point. He would know, even if no one else did, and that's the only thing that matters. There's no subtlety in the fact that Rob is staring at his crown as he considers his, his responsibility to his people, to the two children he had as captives, and to the world in general as a king. Without a doubt, he is also considering what Eddard Stark would do in his position, and there's only one answer. I've seen many in the fandom argue that Rob is being naive here, and isn't being re realistic about the situation they are in, but I disagree. Firstly, if Valor Aurelius tells us anything, it's that the Red Wedding is well on its way by now, but even if we focus on this specific situation, Rob has little options. His legitimacy is already on rocky ground with Winterfell being gone. The Freys have already abandoned him too. If he now goes back on delivering justice, on that responsibility we just discussed of being a king, what kind of king is he? What does that say to his bannermen and the small folk around him? Moreover, if someone can portray him so blatantly and get away with it, well, worse portrayals are coming, but it still sends a pretty clear message that this king is no king at all. There's no argument that morally, Rob was always going to choose the beheading, but I'd like to make it clear it was the correct choice politically as well. And remember, Rickard knew all this. He knew there'd be no chance of a peaceful resolution. That was his point. Force Rob into this position so he loses either way. We have some quotes from Rob here, some really hard-biting quotes. Here's the first, and it's Rob replying to Edmure about what can be done about making an alliance with the Karstark sons later. Even if Harrion were that sort, he could never openly forgive his father's killer. His own men would turn on him. These are Northmen, uncle. The North remembers. So normally the North remembers is quite a, a fan favourite. It's a bracing thing because we all like the North generally. But this is one of the saddest uses we've actually seen throughout the book. But I think that line probably pales in comparison to this one. 
and it's still, again, robbed to Edmure. Rickard Carstark killed more than a Frey and a Lannister. He killed my honour. I shall deal with him at dawn. So that's just a real badass line. Combine this with him putting his crown back on and becoming king again, as Catelyn puts it, it's just a great silhouette of the man Rob has become. Compare this to back in Game of Thrones when he first became Lord of Winterfell, back when he had to hold Bran's hand in the dark. It's an incredible amount of growth in a surprisingly short time, and for more on that kind of that real fast-tracking of growth and all Rob had to put up with, I would really recommend you go and listen to the Radio Westeros episode on Rob Stark, or any of their episodes, but specifically that one for this purpose. But we also get the other side of this strong picture, because Rob does break down a bit and we have him admit how difficult this is for him, this one act and being kingly itself, how all of it truly defies logic and how he simply can't make everything better again despite his intentions. He knows this will have consequences and yet he must do it anyway. We can really feel the weight of the crown on his head in this moment and the horror slide just goes on and on and on. When it comes to the big event of the beheading and note that the rain is pouring down again, Rickard tries to get a final dig in to make Rob's life ever more difficult going forward. He obviously knows his fate but still has enough venom left to want to hurt Rob by trying to insinuate that he is killing an ally and a member of his kin. In another brilliantly smart and quick Rob line, Rob notes that this is a two-way street and Rickard didn't uphold his part of being a loyal ally. In fact, he corrupted it entirely. Besides, I think he'd be hard-pressed to find anyone to agree this is actual kinslaying, or no one in the Seven Kingdoms nobility, and especially from the same region, would be able to attack one another ever. But again, none of this is Rickard trying to save himself. He's merely trying to leave as much emotional damage behind as possible. The final part of this chapter, after the beheading, gives us a rare glimpse into the marriage of Jane and Rob, and unfortunately, it's not the prettiest of looks. Jane's account of Rob's frustration, his desperate searching for an answer, even in maps or in letters, and his feeling of being penned in at every angle, the despair he must be feeling, really, really hits me hard. And Jane has to share the same frustrations in that, aside from their physical relationship, she is also fruitlessly searching for some kind of answer. As if that isn't enough of a downer, we get another confirmation that George really has it in for people named Jane. I give you this quote. The girl smiled at that. My mother... My mother says the same. She makes a posset for me, herbs and milk and ale, to help make me fertile. I drink it every morning. I told Rob I'm sure to give him twins. An Eddard and a Brandon. He'd like that, I think. Sorry, Rickon, you're out of the name game. <laughs> but as we spoke about earlier, the idea that Sybil is pulling a tansy is horrible and sickening and seems to possibly also be the reality. The betrayal of having the person who's supposed to protect you and the one person you can really trust doing this to you, by which I mean her mother, well, it makes you feel for Jane and Lysa if you have any sort of soul at all. Here's hoping Sybil Spicer doesn't have to wait as long as Huster Tully did for his comeuppance. Okay, we're halfway through here. We're going to move on to Jamie Free. So for the thousandth time already in Storm of Swords, we get a real nice connection on two chapters being placed next to each other perfectly. We've just spoken a whole bunch about the cast up men being released into the wild to hunt down Jamie Lannister. That's on our mind for this whole chapter, and yet... In a wonderful mix of irony and coincidence, Jamie does get captured by Northmen, or people in league with Northmen, but the wrong ones. And we've also been speaking a lot about horror slides. Jamie doesn't experience anything 100 of his terrible as a red wedding, but for him personally, this isn't so much a horror slide as it is a horror cliff, that Jamie blindly falls off and loses the thing that matters to him most at the end of this chapter. And we begin in Maidenpool and one of the worst scenes we've come across so far. It puts me in mind of the scene in Mulan, and I do like to think about Mulan a lot, where they just kind of like climb over the hill and that whole village is just like gone and there's just no one alive. Here in Maidenpool, 
There's no people, but plenty of wild wolves and feral dogs fighting amongst the leftovers. The magical fountain that we've heard so much about from Sansa and Dontos is filled with rotting corpses. I mean, come on, it's filled with rotten corpses. How terrible an image do you want to give us, George? I'm actually really glad Sansa never sees this. This is the ultimate scene of the small folk being forgotten and left behind by the nobility, because this is word for word what's happened here. The Moutons, they're supposed to be protecting Maidenpool, they've just shut their gates. They've let their people be terrorised and stuck their fingers in the ear. It's about as anti-Stark as you could get. And I think Aziz did actually uh, mention this quote, but I'm going to say it again. They saw nothing living but a few feral dogs that went slinking away at the sound of their approach. The pool from which the town took its name, where legend said that Florian the Fool had first glimpsed Jonquil baffing with her sisters, was so choked with rotting corpses that the water had turned into a murky grey-green soup. Yeah, just let, just let you consider that for a little while. I think George is getting his point across here. But if we look at our maps, Maidenpool is actually really far east of where they were before in Jamie 2, back when they passed the Inn of the Kneeling Man. That's a heck of a rate they made, and stretching this far east takes them out of the Brotherhood area in the Mid-Riverlands type section to the west of Harrenhal. Not that they know about them anyway, and it also keeps them clear of Harrenhal, so I guess that makes sense. If they can get past the northern-occupied Harrenhal, they now nearly have a straight shot down to King's Landing. And really, the difference in distance is staggering from where they were to where they are now. If they travel down the coast, in theory they are going into an almost Lannister-controlled land. I think as he's mentioned, the problem is they don't know about the Battle of Duskendale and how that's going to affect them in a minute. After Maidenpool, we have this quote. A half mile on, Green began to creep back into the world once more. Jamie was glad. The burned lands reminded him too much of Ares. I just like this, seeing as these burned lands came on the orders of Tywin Lannister. So there's a nice symmetry there between the two men who were once best friends and the two that Jamie has had to pledge his life to, just being connected by this burning. So early on, Brienne makes a choice about taking the Duskendale Road or the unnamed Coast Road, and though they both eventually come to the same place and perhaps make it likely they'll be captured at the final hurdle, I do wonder if the Coast Road literally goes all the way up around Crackclaw Point and back, because that would take them ages to clear, and perhaps would allow some time for those defeated Normans to disperse. Of course, Brienne will end up going that way in Feast for Crows, and she's not going to have a great time of it, so maybe either way they were screwed. And a quick shout out to Cleos Frey for noting that the coast road would have been safer because, for him, it definitely would have been. The passage where Jamie remembers his origins with Cersei is interesting for several reasons. Firstly, that in Jamie's first two chapters, we went back to major moments of his life in joining the Kingsguard and slaying Ares, and now we're jumping back further instead of doing the whole thing linearly. Second is the idea that if Joanna had lived, Jamie and Cersei's relationship might have been nipped in the bud before they came to full sexual maturity, and hence a whole lot of bother would have been saved. So maybe Cersei should be thanking Tyrion in a rather sickening way. We also get to discover that this affair is a lifelong thing, and therefore something Jamie sees as completely natural. He doubles down on that by referring to the Targaryens doing the same thing, and of course that Lannister pride burns through, as he genuinely believes the lion to be superior to the dragon, so they should be allowed to do it too. He even believes it's so normal that he begins thinking it would be a good idea for his own children. He literally states he believes the Lannisters to be above the law. For all we pin Cersei to the wall for not considering anything past the length of her own sentence, or the wider world or political situation, Jamie is just as guilty. He's taking an incredibly simplified version of what might happen even in an incredibly stable peacetime. There's no thought for how this might be received by the faith, by the small folk, or most notably by his own father, and it's quite comparable to back in his last chapter when he was thinking about how he'd go to war with Robert and just doesn't really think past his own sentence like Cersei. And this quote merges with something else. He's referring to Tom in here. I quote, We can marry into Marcella, once we've sent Sansa Stark back to her mother. 
So even more telling is the end of this passage where Jamie accidentally admits to himself he genuinely does intend to send Sansa back. It happens so quickly I'm not even sure he notices, but it's a lot of progress considering the position he was taking in Jamie 1. But just like that, we're thrown into the first action of the chapter when Jamie hears the arrows and he gets his old skills kicking in automatically. Brienne, she doesn't notice as quick as Jamie, but she's strong enough to take the punishment anyway. And then there's Cleos, who really doesn't get a chance to react and show his skills because he essentially dies of poor timing in the end. He's just unlucky. And after that, Jamie does his best big Waldo impression by horribly stating that he has many cousins and he proceeds to rob Cleos's corpse. And I like that this particular scene is zeroed in on when Jamie speaks with his aunt Jenna in Feast for Crows, it's Cleos's mother. And most importantly, Jamie gets his hands on a sword leading to what you would think would be a defining moment of the chapter. Now, I am a lifelong believer that the show's duel between, between Brienne and Sandor is the very best we ever get on screen. Similarly, I think all of Brienne's duels on page are the best written and the most beautiful to imagine, and there's no change of that here, even if we don't get it through her POV. The ultimate irony of this fight is that they really are the final hurdle. They've put up with each other across half the Riverlands, they've survived now multiple attacks together, and the end is in sight, apart from pesky Duskendale being in the way. But in the end, Brienne's saintly patience that we've praised across Jamie's previous two chapters finally wears thin, and Jamie presses it merely because he can, because he still doesn't like her, because he's still a bully, and because the only way he can express himself is by fighting. So here we go. Right from the off, Jamie boils over of equal parts arrogance and pure bliss. He knows he's chained, unbalanced, restricted, and has the wrong sword, yet he clearly doesn't bother thinking about the fact that he's seen Brienne's skillet arms already, and apparently isn't slowed down by getting hit by two arrows a couple of minutes ago. He is absolutely sure of his victory, because he's just stepped back into a world that he has always owned. There's no reality where he can lose. Let's give you a quote from this sword fight. The swords kissed and sprang apart and kissed again. Jamie's blood was singing. This is what he was meant for. He never felt so alive as when he was fighting, with death balanced on every stroke. And that quote reminds me very much of Tyrion's thoughts on the Blackwater, which he also linked back to Jamie. So again, Jamie is in his element. His arrogance still maintains though, especially when he gives a moment of respite, as though it's a gift, when in the very same sentence he states that he is breathless and he's the one who stops first, whereas Brienne's breath is slow and deep by comparison. Another quote, She is stronger than I am. The realisation chilled him. So I adore this part of the text. Brienne has made her own attack, she's cut his brow, she's denied him any kind of hit on her person, and Jamie is now tiring until finally his crystal bubble breaks and the realisation hits him. It reminds me of our comparisons to professional athletes when we spoke about both John and Robert Raffian in early Game of Thrones, especially John when he arrives at the wall. It's very similar here. We'll never know how much Jamie's imprisonment really affected his skill, how much of it is natural ageing, I mean when, when was the last time he was actually duelling for his life, and how much is the simple fact that Brienne is better than him. But the point is that rock-sure fact that Jamie could not be beaten is suddenly broken in his mind. In one way, it might be kind that Jamie loses his hand in five minutes' time. It gives him a lifelong excuse. And not that this is confirmed to have happened, but what if the River Run cells really had robbed him of his ability, and this had been the start of a long, terrible road that could never match his previous high? At least the mutilation robs him of that reality. Jamie gets in one good hit, to be fair, but that's it. Brienne stands strong. Jamie falls but he holds on to enough of his crystal bubble that he refuses to yield because, you know, he's a Lannister and all that. And then, everybody's day gets a whole lot worse. Last week, we had reanimated whites and rotting bears creep onto the stage. The bloody mummers not as bad as all that, but they are about as close as humanity can get while still breathing. These guys return to the stage and the reader naturally recoils as we remember everything from our IR Clash chapters, solidified by Rorge in particular being singled out. 
Him alone is enough to set the mood, but all of them, pretty awful. But Jamie being Jamie, he believes himself safe. Why? Because he has always been safe, in truth. Even without being a legendary swordsman, he had his name and his goal to get him out of essentially every situation. So why should it be any different here? Like we mentioned at the top of the chapter, they're supposed to be nearing Lannister land. Last he heard, the mummers were on Team Lannister, so everything is cool. And even if not, there is always the name and the wealth. Considering Jamie has just been knocked down by his hated Brienne, he really feels the need to insert his dominance here, so he starts acting as Lannisterly as possible. And like the slow creep of horror, that confidence slowly trickles away as Jamie starts seeing the reality without a Lannister filter, hint by tiny hint, as Urswick's smile, Vargo holding Harrenhal, the way they don't have the usual look of intimidation or servitude. And then finally, there's the laugh, just this one single laugh. Jamie realises that he has to bargain. Okay, that's fine. When name fails, there is always wealth. And then he comes up short there too. And for the second time in 20 minutes, Jamie is doused with a chilling realisation when he is slapped. He has no power over them. His surname means nothing. He is not a mortal. He is, finally, just like other men. Obviously, in the icy cold of this moment, Jamie doesn't have time to stop and think that this is all because of Tywin. If Team Lannister hadn't so enthusiastically blown the rules of society apart with their burning and cruelty, it would have been much easier to negotiate here. As it is, the kind of chaos unleashed is a breeding gown for people like the Bloody Mummers, people that Tywin let loose. So I will never stop loving the fact that Jamie loses his hand because of his own father. Cruelly, the last born breakdown of convention also extends to not bothering of ransoms, how high-born prisoners are treated, and the most base level of human decency when directed at women. This is too horrible to spend anything but the minimum of time looking at, but if anything, it confirms the mummers truly are the scum of the earth in almost every conceivable way. And if that point hasn't been hammered home just yet, we meet Vargo Hope just as he and his men are busy trashing a sept in another clear breakdown of, of normal war rules, and in such a manner, the hanging septum particularly, that their sadisticness is an obvious disdain for anything good in the world is a very clear line in the sand. And then, the moment comes. Just as Jamie regains confidence in himself and his name, just as he labels Vargo Hote an idiot who he can bully or bribe as he does nearly everyone else, and just as Jamie mentally reassures himself as Jamie Lannister, the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, and that he will never be so low as to show weakness, Arak comes down and his hand comes off. It's cruel in more ways than we can describe. It's a death unto itself, and it's the end of the Jamie we know, for good and bad. For the first time, Jamie receives the loudest, most inarguable message that Lannisters are not gods among men, that he is not invincible, and that he, in a very different way now, is no longer like other men. Okay, for our final chapter today, we're sticking in the Riverlands, but we're going back to that other section, a little bit happier of a section, it must be said, and we're going back to Aya 4. I'd completely forgotten that Aya visits this Lord Leicester at the beginning of this chapter. But it's very interesting to see that the Brotherhood don't only interact with one type of people or one class of people. Obviously, a larger amount of resources can be offered, but it's also great for keeping the enemy guessing about where you might be if you're also interacting with the nobility a little bit. Then that is followed up with a completely different setting, a hidden village in the trees, as much a true fantasy setting as any, and with a lady of the leaves to complete the image. And I really, really hope we come across those guys again. It's as if I was getting a quick tour of the entire Brotherhood infrastructure in this chapter. And I guess also access to a maester is incredibly useful to them, not only as a healer, but as probably the best opportunity for communication and information. Clearly, given Lord Leicester's limited mental capabilities in this chapter, this particular maester is supportive of the Brotherhood. And I wonder if he reports back to the Citadel on this. I'm unsure if it's stepping over the mark of his oath or not. 
We're going to zip forward to this uh, Lady of the Leaves and, and they're visiting this, this village in the trees. I'll give you this quote. A dozen wolves went down the Hayford Road nine days past, hunting. If they chanced to look up, they might have seen us. So you go to wonder, is that Karstark's? We'll, we'll wonder about that again in a second. As if we need any more convincing, we see how much Beric Dondarrion means to these people when the Lady of the Leaves clutches Lem's arms about the supposed death of Beric. I suppose there's a sliding scale to all this. At first, these tales of death must be incredible blows to morale, but time and time again, they hear that Beric has survived. They might even hear how, maybe. So much so that by the time Beric finally does die later on, the Brotherhood probably have the opposite problem of trying to get people to believe he's actually dead. I suppose I find it particularly hard to put myself in the mindset of not yet knowing that Beric truly is being healed and then resurrected, because he's just so tied into his character. We have to remember, I doesn't know any of that yet. If we imagine being a first-time reader, then at the very least you must know by now that these multiple reports of, of Beric's deaths are going to be significant in one way or the other. In Sally Dance, we get confirmation that it is the car starts running around, committing similar atrocities to the mummers. Again, supreme chapter placement by George. And we see Aya having to bear this confusing cross once more. It still doesn't quite make sense to her how men once sworn to her father, and now to her brother, can do such things. She feels shame, as she knows her father would. Combine this with her heartbreakingly wondering if Rob and Catelyn would still want her after her various deeds, and it's a very emotional opening to a chapter. Now remember in Sally's Ants, this is where they find the, the trash sept and the people hiding under it, and it's interesting that the Septon shelters and works with the Brotherhood when R'hllor is so prominent among them. Would the Septon still welcome them if Forrest was in this specific band, I wonder? We have this quote from the same scene. Not even their leader, who wore soot blackened armour and a crude lightning bolt on his cloak, when Greenbeard saw Arya staring at him, he laughed and said, The Lightning Lord is everywhere and nowhere, skinny squirrel. This also evaded my memory somehow, and I'm guessing that first-time readers might legitimately be fooled into thinking that, Beren, that Beric Dondarrion and his many deaths actually belong to several men all pretending to be one, hence providing morale for the small folk and forever confusing the enemy. It's quite a smart idea. From there, we get some further info on the Brotherhood in terms of how they find each other, protect each other by not sharing locations, or ensure there is enough to eat and that they don't destabilise the food economy of the small folk, and that all of this is immediately contrasted with Aya's memories of travelling with, with Gregor Clegane's men, because they were all quite the opposite. Speaking of further info, we get a reminder of the story of Tom making up a song about Edmure being unable to do the deed. At first glance, this can be seen as some light comic relief, or a throwaway line, but it's actually quite important we learn this now, so we can later connect the dots when Tom is reunited with Edmure in A Feast for Crows. I do find it interesting that Tom is kind of reluctant to take responsibility for what his song did to Redmuir. Clearly, he doesn't hate the man, but he isn't a fan here either. On top of that, I think it's just part of a strategy by George to get us to intimately know as much of the Brotherhood as possible, and there's still quite a few chapters of them to go, so that when we see them again at the end of Feast, and, and also the end of Storm, because we will see how much of them has been hollowed out and changed under the direction of Lady Stoneheart, and how they themselves exhibit the same slow signs of death that Beric does in Storm. As a big fan of the Isle of Faces, well, hey, I love that we get to visit High Heart and that George gives such a beautiful description because this is clearly one of these inherently magical places, one of the tentpoles of old Westeros and the world that should be. The idea of this being an intimately important place for the children of the forest is so interesting and yet so heartbreaking because like we heard with the giant song last week, humans had to come and ruin everything. In this case, we actually get an exact name for the man who committed this crime against nature and we don't actually get many examples of this kind of thing far south. And for yet more heartbreak, we have Aya innocently thinking on how this place would be easy to defend because it is essentially a high heel. But we also know this obviously did nothing to help the children of the forest out. 
plus nice comparison to the Fist of the First Men. Next up on this uh, quick travel chapter, we visit upon Lady Smallwood at Acorn Hall, returning us to the idea of the Brotherhood dipping between allies both high and lowborn. Most importantly, and thanks again to the chapter placement, we get a very sharp contrast between Lady Smallwood open-handedly helping a force who helped the small folk and the Moutons, who abandoned the people of Maidenpool to their fate. We're now given one of my favourites, an opportunity to compare Aya and Sansa. Though the chapters are as linked up as normal, there's a different similarity in how both Aya and Sansa have been devoid of feminine company. As we spoke about in Sansa's last chapter, this has been incredibly important to her. Aya, on the other hand, does not typically seek female activities, but she gets her own reunion with femininity here, the first one in a long time. As bad as it was for Sansa, Aya has spent even less time around women since she escaped King's Landing, and definitely not someone of her own class. Dresses, talk of needlework, none of that is like Aya herself, but does a great job of reminding who she really is, yet also making her uncomfortable, because she has absolutely no guides on how to relate to dresses and the such anymore, as little as she did before. That confusion and frustration is dissipated when her and Gendry get just a tad more friendly than usual, and though people have pointed out problems with this passage before, I think it was intended to be a rare bright spot in the middle of this horrible war they've been through, a rare moment where they can both pretend to just be children again. There's this quote, What do you like to do? She scuffed a toe amongst the rushes. Needlework. Very restful, isn't it? Well, said Aya, not the way I do it. It's just a cool line I want to mention, is Aya showing off her wit and her memory of her sister too. But here's another one. A white sun on black was the sigil of Lord Carstark, Aya thought. Those were Rob's men. She wondered if they were still close. If she could give the outlaws the slip and find them, maybe they would take her to her mother at Riverrun. Again, it's tough for Aya to think on Rob's men doing anything bad, but this is even more worrying given what we know from Catelyn's chapter a moment ago. One shudders to think what they might have done with her, especially after hearing about Rickard's fate. Near the end of the chapter, we get Aya and Gendry remembering what they know of the forest we saw in King's Landing. I believe this to be an obvious intention by George to jog our memories a bit and plant a specific image on our heads, one that is going to change when we actually do meet the new, energised Forrest in a little bit, one who looks completely different in terms of his faith and in terms of his body form. And at the very end of the chapter is Aya realising that these clothes, the type she's always hated, do really mean something to Lady Smallwood, who has lost her own children. Aya feels shame, but critically, Lady Smallwood tells her to be brave whilst being pretty too, joining two foreign concepts in Aya's head. We should give Lady Smallwood some credit here. Not only is she holding everything down herself in the middle of a war zone, she's actively helping those she is responsible for, and we know she could have been a real superb mention for Aya, without a doubt. And just to finish off this chapter and this episode today, I just think it's nice that Sansa, she got a bit of a memory of her opening chapter back in Winsfell with that needlework in her last chapter, so we have Aya thinking on needlework too, even if it wasn't her fondest memory. It's a memory of Sansa and the two sisters. Okay, everybody, that is the four chapters for today. That is Dawn of Swords Part 5. Yes, Part 5 already. Next week, of course, Part 6. And let me update you on what chapters we can expect. That's back to five chapters next week. So we have Daenerys 2, Bran 2, Davos 3, John 3, and Daenerys 3. So double Daenerys next week. A lot of Essos, a lot of North, and a bit of Dragonstone. We're staying away from King's Landing and the Riverlands, which is a bit of a change. But anyway, look forward to that. That'll be next week. Be sure to tune in to History of Westeros for their live stream. And then the episode of Scraps and Scrolls for patrons will be up Monday and then general release on Tuesday, as this one will, of course, as well. Now, remind you, this week's pair pick is Osha versus Gilly. Make sure to get your vote in. Please say some comments on, to me on Twitter. I'm sure I can read them out, probably. And like I said way back at the beginning, there are new types of episodes on their way to lower faces. But I won't keep you about that now. Just keep your eyes open across the god's eye you'll see some messages coming soon 
Thank you everybody for tuning in. I know this has been a long one, so I won't keep you any longer. I'm off to battle this storm. The winds, oh, they are coming. So pray for me, and I will see you next time. Cheers, guys. <laughs>